2: Alright, welcome everybody to the Lakers Legacy Podcast where don't cry foul when you see that scrawny white boy in a Lakers jersey cross you up, absorb the contact, hit the shot, and get the foul. Because when he hits you with that whiplash head fake, it's over. He zoomed past you, puts you in a blender, and is now hitting some ridiculous circus shot in your eye. And now he's running back, sweeping his sweaty bangs across his face, and letting you know with a nod that you ain't shit. Cause we are all just living in his timeline now. Lakers, Reeves loaded. Austin Reeves! Book of Reeves-alations. The end is coming. Uh, (laughs) I am your host, Jonathan Hernandez, and I am joined by my co-host, Tommy Alexander, Tommy, welcome back to the show. I'm going to put you on the spot here, but who is the greatest white Laker in our generation since like the 1999-2000s era? And why is it Austin Reeves? Or maybe it's not Austin Reeves, but who do you think is the greatest white Laker in our generation, not counting the Euro guys like Pau Gasol and Vlad Rad.
1: Yeah, not counting the Euro guys was, is the big caveat in this discussion. It's like sometimes I feel like this, this discussion comes up a lot online and people forget that European people exist. <laughs> but, uh, so not counting PAL specifically. Jeez, um, I mean, Luke Walton had a run there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's definitely up there.
2: Okay, so we've got as candidates Alex Caruso, obviously. Uh, Steve Blake, the Blake Mamba, Josh McRoberts, McBobby, (laughs) Luke Walton, like you mentioned, Um, Ryan Kelly, anybody? (laughs) Um, And Steve Nash. Although when we got Steve Nash, he wasn't Steve Nash. So looking at that spectrum right there and adding Austin Reeves in it, and I guess you can do a little projecting out. Would it be Austin Reeves? Yes. Yes, it is. So there we go. All right. Well, in today's episode, we are obviously going to be talking a lot about Austin Reeves, and then we're going to do our stock standard temperature check on the Lakers race to the play-in, which is getting dicier and dicier by the game. Currently, the Lakers are 35 and 37. They are 10th in the West, 0.5 games from the play-in, which I think is currently occupied by the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Jazz after they... Beat the Sacramento Kings last night, unfortunately. And the Lakers are still 1.5 games away from the sixth seed where the Warriors currently are at, at 37 and 36. If the Lakers had won their games against Houston and Dallas last week, they would be the sixth seed. But alas, play stupid games and don't plan accordingly by signing an emergency big and win very stupid prizes. All right, Tommy. So usually we'll talk about the macro team and then we'll get into the details of the individual players. But for today's episode, I wanted to start with the individual player and just highlight Austin Reeves because... I don't think we've given him enough shine on this podcast the last two years because we've been in such a haze, we've been in this limbo state, and we've only kind of talked about him here and there. But I think this is finally the episode to give him his shine and highlight. So we'll talk about Austin Reeves first and what he's done over the last couple of months. And then we'll talk about the macro stuff with regards to the team, how they've looked recently, and how these last 10 games might play out. So are you ready to talk about Austin Reeves? I'm ready. Okay, let's do this because he literally saved our season last night. and Or not last night, sorry. He literally saved our season against Orlando Sunday night and kept it alive. Career high, 35 points, 6 rebounds, 6 assists, 9 of 14 from the field, 16 of 18 from the stripe. Jeez. Absolutely incredible game. So since the All-Star break, Austin Reeves is averaging 17 points, three rebounds, five assists, on 58% from the field, 40% from three, 83% from the stripe. That's a 73% true shooting percentage. And he's doing that in only 27 minutes, dude. That's since the All-Star break. Um, What have your thoughts been on Austin Reeves? Uh, You can obviously talk about the Orlando game, but just what he's been doing in this stretch... Without LeBron James. When LeBron James went out, we were looking at, you know, D'Angelo Russell to fill the gap, Janice Schroeder to fill the gap. And lo and behold, it's an undrafted white dude named Austin Reeves who has filled the gap and the usage for LeBron James, which is pretty incredible when you think about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can't, you definitely can't say enough about Austin's sort of rise here. It's like last year he emerged. You know, undrafted, he had a little bit of, uh, you know, buzz among Laker fans because, oh, he should have been a second round pick, right? And he ended up going undrafted and he, you know, there are the reports that he actually was going to go in the second round and he declined because he wanted to choose this team and he grew up a Laker fan or whatever, right? So I think it's like all of that stuff sort of endeared fans to him from the beginning. The fact that he, you know, showed up in summer league and showed up in early preseason and, you know, early last season when he got chances and played really tough defense you know, endeared him probably a little bit more. I think as high as I was on Austin last year, which I was pretty high on him. I mean, frankly, as high as I was on, like, any of our young prospects we ever had through the rebuild, like, since the time we started doing this podcast, um, probably as high on him as I was, you know, on anyone. maybe save for, like, BI or, like, our very top, like, lotto picks, right? So, mm-hmm after especially after the way he looked after his rookie year, but even I never would have like guessed that Austin could no. really elevate it to that next level. You know what I mean? And I think that's the thing. He's not just like he, I think for a year I sort of thought like probably halfway through midseason last year or halfway through the season last year, I, I felt Austin has proved that he is an NBA player. Then like, you know, towards the beginning of this season, maybe halfway through this season, I'm like Austin proved he can be like a real rotational, maybe even the six man type. And then now it's like, we get to like, we're almost done with this season. We're like 90% of the way through. Right. And it's like, Austin Reeves is actually like a legitimate NBA starter. Like give him the usage on a rebuilding team. And this dude is as good as any young yeah. star in the NBA. In my opinion, especially when you factor in that he plays both sides of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, He's elite at drawing fouls. He's, you know, elite at finishing not finishing just three-point opportunities, but making the shot after getting fouled. And that's Mm -hmm. something that actually, you know, tracks with his... um, When you looked at, like, the analytics when he was coming out of college, exactly. He was, like, one of the... I think he was in the top 15 or 10% in the nation at finishing after contact. Um, You know, so it, it... you just he's just so good he's like you know I I I don't know it's like it's crazy to say that on a team with D'Angelo Russell Austin Reeves might still be our third best player he's certainly in the conversation he's certainly in our starter on this team and not just a starter on this team but I think like could be a starter on a serious contender so Mm -hmm. I, I just yeah I can't say enough good things about Austin and it's been really cool to see him develop. And I think there's mutual interest in him coming back. So I don't think we have to worry. I mean, give him whatever he wants, like, which I assume he's going to want the two-year deal because then he can re-up and get a bigger deal in two years. Um, But I mean, if he'll take the four-year deal, give him the four-year deal, like, full. I think we can give him, like, four-year 50 or whatever, like, is the most we can Mm -hmm. offer, like, or anyone can offer. So give him that, like, with no questions asked. But, um, But I would not even... I mean, I assume what's going to happen is that we're going to come in with that, and then he's going to want the two years to get make himself a free agent. But I think we will keep him. Um, and it's just funny how like just earlier this season, I know there were fans online like debating whether or not it made sense to keep Austin long term. So it's like it's crazy how not turned it around. How much tur- he hasn't turned it around a ton, but like how much he's like really boosted his view in in terms of other fans. And all it took was getting a little more usage with you know clearing out the glut of high usage guards that we had.
2: Yeah, I think the cream really rises to the top when you give a player more usage and you really see what they can do. And for Austin, it's improved, you know? Obviously, he gets more turnovers, is a little bit more reckless, but that's to be expected because he's literally shifting his role from being an ancillary utility dude to all of a sudden having the ball in his hands in crunch time and expected to make something happen, you know? And I think... The biggest thing for me in realizing that Austin is quote-unquote for real, even after he had that 30-point triple-double against Denver in the last game of last season, right? I think last season, because it was such a freaking tire fire, we were like, yeah, he's really good, um, but is it a looter in a riot sort of deal, you know? Like, there's no expectations, there's no pressure. And I guess you could say that a little bit for much of this year as well, but Look, LeBron hasn't been here. AD has been in and out of the lineup. We've had an entirely new group. And for me, it's been it's only crystallized even more because he's doing this in such meaningful games where the every game is a must-win and Austin Reeves is stepping up to the plate and delivering in crunch time. You know? In the Orlando game. Tommy, he was the only one who had the confidence to do something outside of Dennis Schroeder, but we know the problems and falls with Dennis Schroeder, and he became our best on-ball primary initiating option in the crunch time, you know? And to me, that is insane. So, yeah, maybe in the totem pole without LeBron, it's AD, D'Angelo Russell, and then Austin Reeves, but... Maybe two out of four nights, two out of four games in any week, Austin Reeves can also be the second best player. You know, and he kind of wa- he was that in the Orlando game. Um, so for me, seeing more of Austin, seeing more of the usage, I think what stands out to me, and you mentioned it about the fouls, is his strength and aggression. Like he throws his body around, but it's not in a loafing Harden or Embiid or Trey Young type of way because. He's actually finishing through contact, like you mentioned, and it's not wild layups or lucky tosses to the basket. He's actually trying to square up, and even though his legs are like willy-nilly like flaying to the side, he's trying to make that shot. He's hitting off-balance jump shots as well, so they're not all and one layups or whatever. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. It's been incredible what he's done this last month, and he's only validated the fact that he is... Truly a keeper. Tommy, he's only 24. I know he came into the NBA an older draft prospect, but I mentioned this last year when Chris Duarte was getting all this hype, right? As an older prospect doing big things his rookie year. Um, And I said, I think Austin Reeves might be a better prospect than Chris Duarte. And yeah. after this season, that looks to be true. And guess what? I mean, Austin Reeves at twenty four years old is actually younger than twenty five year old Chris Duarte. So it's it's kind of wild yeah. when you
1: put that into
2: perspective.
1: Well, it's like you you just you look you look back at his draft. Even You're just looking back at his draft, it's how many guys in that draft are definitely better prospects than Austin? And I'll even factor in age because Austin is a little bit older, right? It's like once you get past like five or six names. There's, I don't know. I like Austin pretty soon. He, I think it's very arguably, you can even say like definitively a top 10 pick in a redraft of that year. And he went undrafted. So it's just, it's pretty crazy that we we picked up that kind of talent.
2: Yeah. and, And so with Austin Reeves gaining more usage, obviously, like I mentioned, there's higher volatility because you see where he kind of gets too sped up and he starts making super wild passes but i think if you compare his volatility to dennis schroeder it's like this is high volatility in a good way tommy because you know he's looking to make the right play play the right way and everything he does is not just in a straight tunnel black hole with a one track kind of mind where that's typically what it is for dennis schroeder and dennis schroeder is looking to pass as a last resort even if he's looking to pass as a first resort, he just cannot connect with Anthony Davis, no matter how hard he tries. But with Austin, it's like, he is looking to make a play, Tommy. It doesn't matter if he gets the bucket or if somebody else gets the bucket. His, Austin Reeves' mindset is, okay, my team needs me to do something, so I'm going to drive and make something happen. Yeah, you know, yeah. And I can live with that high volatility. I can live with that high volatility, whether it's him shooting, him driving to kick it out to another man, or him finding the open cutter, or... Him trying to get a foul. Like, I will live with Austin Reeves' volatility more than I will with Dennis Schroeder's volatility, obviously, Russell Westbrook's volatility, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, right now, I don't know if you have like a player fusion comp for him, but I've had a lot of ones for him as we've seen him come up. There was that Joe Ingles comp, a little bit of Goran Dragic. I talked about, you know, this more stable version of Jordan Poole. But now I think I've settled on if you took Tyler Hero, Tommy and you fused him with a little bit of Gordon Hayward's stability, decision making and strength and athleticism, I think you'd get Austin Reeves. But obviously like Tyler Hero, you can also get some of the wild drives and funky passes and shots from Austin from time to time because he's getting used to that role, but I think if you look at like a shorter Gordon Hayward but or like a Tyler Hero Gordon Hayward fusion where you get the wildness of Tyler Hero but also sort of like the high IQ, stable uh, play of Gordon Hayward as well do you have an updated fusion for Austin Reeves
1: um I like the Tyler Hero comp um I, I don't know as we've discussed on the in the past it all feels sort of lazy because it's always going to be white guys that we compare them to but... I mean I brought Jordan Poole I felt like that <laughs> yeah, was that's pretty sure that is that is a that is a good one um I actually, yeah, I don't know who his game, what it's going to fully develop into. I mean, I do see flashes of Hero. I I also see flashes of like Ginobili. I mean, like that, Mm -hmm. it feels absurd to say that, right? Because Ginobili is like a Hall of Famer. But I mean, I'm not saying like he's going to be as good as him, right? But in terms of like their style, like... Not the most athletic seeming, which by the way I think is kind of like nonsense because Austin actually is extremely oh, quick man, yeah. off the dribble and he can jump. I mean, he's not like Alex Caruso explosiveness, but he can jump, um, um and explode a bit in the paint when he needs to. So, you know, I like that because the you know the things that kind of remind me of Manu though are like playing both sides of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, decision making as an off-ball creator. Like sometimes he's gonna be, he can be your primary, essentially primary point guard. That's not necessarily his best role, but if you have him off the ball, he can still create. Um the thing that's also kind of impressed me about Austin and maybe a little bit sort of makes him closer to the Man Who comparison is is the fact that he's been able to maintain his efficiency with increased volume. True. Because mm-hmm. he's been, you know, he's been hovering at you know a little bit below 50 40 90 most of the season actually it's just you know substantially lower volume than what you like typically hear from guys who are like going for that right so the question was always you know the role player question which is if he had increased volume is this going to be like a Jeremy Grant leaving Denver situation where he explodes or is it going to be like a Trevor Ariza leaving the Lakers mm-hmm. situation where it's like he's just chucking shots and his numbers go up at the efficiency dips you know whatever Austin, like you said, he, he shows like a very intense understanding of what he needs to do to help the team win a game on any given night. I don't know if that's like a function of coming off the bench and seeing what's going on or or what, but he seems to like know what the team needs. Like sometimes it's scoring, sometimes it's playmaking, and he just does that on on a day-to-day basis. And when they do need him to score, he's just been as efficient as he was when LeBron and AD and Russ and everybody was playing.
2: Yeah, I think it's kind of like his college career was a microcosm of what we're seeing now because I think his two years before he got to Oklahoma, he was strictly a spot up shooter, right? He and then when he at got Wichita to Wichita State. So, yeah, when yeah,
1: Wichita State is like, you know, a mid major school, that's like a lot. That's not the type of school where you go to be like a I'm running the show type of player. You know what I mean? It's like exactly. you're going to be a cog in a wheel um, situation.
2: Yeah, so I think that experience all culminated together to bring us the Austin Reeves we see now. And I think Gordon Hayward is probably the most apt comp outside of um, Manu Ginobili, just because Gordon Hayward at his prime was very strong and physical. And you see the way that Austin Reeves throws his body around just to get contact and finish these and ones. That was Gordon Hayward to a T, you know? I think one thing that he should maybe be cautious about with regards to Gordon Hayward's career is, I think the injuries started piling up, right? Because Gordon Hayward was kind of so physical. Um, So hopefully Austin Reeves can get stronger and maybe pull back a little bit more. But right now he's doing exactly what the Lakers need. So with that said, let's take it to break. And when we return, let's talk more about the larger team as a whole as it pertains to the last few weeks and then what the last 10 look like. And yeah, we'll close it out from there. Alright, so we are back. One last note on Austin Reeves, and Tommy, you mentioned it initially about his next upcoming contract. So, because of the Gilbert Arenas rule, the Lakers, if they want to, have the ability to retain Austin Reeves no matter what. The most they can offer him, though, is around $11 a year, which is pretty much the standard mid-level, or the average salary amount of whatever the average salary amount for players was in total for the NBA last season, which is around $11 million. And the most they can offer him is $11 million per year at four years with the standard raises. If you include the standard raises, then that becomes like 50 million over four, right? Um, Like you mentioned, his team, Austin Reeves' team, will likely want a two-year contract. Although it's not, it's I, I saw another report that said they're fine with the fifty million dollars over four years, and in which case, like yeah, sign me up, you right? Definitely do <laughs> because, that, yeah, yeah. But if he wants just like the two years, like twenty-four million dollar option, fine, and then we can re-sign him and work with him on a new deal or extension, you know, two years from now. Now another team though can poison pill austin reeves and give him a contract up to 80 million dollars and this is this is where the gilbert arenas rule comes in jeremy lynn also had a poison pill deal when the houston rockets pried him away from the new york knicks and what a poison pill deal for austin would look like from other teams is they would sign him to two years 11 million dollars for those first two years and then the poison pill comes on the back end of this contract where for the last two years of a four-year deal they could give Austin Reeves his max. So his max in those last two years would be 27.7 the third year and then 28.9 the fourth year. So in total, a a max contract Gilbert Arenas poison pill deal would look like four years, $80 million for Austin Reeves. I believe for the Lakers, that cap hit would look like like if they match it, and again, the Lakers can match this offer from another team. If they match, I believe it's... evened out
1: for the for them right or it might
2: be evened out for the team i'm sorry that i don't have this yeah i
1: got you i'm pretty sure it's reversed i think it's evened out for the other team and for us the reason it's a poison pill for us is because it jumps in year three
2: okay so it's like 11 11 27 28 for us but for the other team it will be 20 million per year right
1: yeah because the the and the idea is like we can't give Austin a deal that we're not legally allowed to give him. So like uh, the only type of team I think that could offer him this sort of deal would be a team that would have like cap space outright that just wanted to like come in and muck stuff up. There's just like a lot of ways to avoid, I feel like this situation. Um, So hopefully it doesn't happen, (laughs) but I guess it's technically possible.
2: Exactly. Just get to the table with Austin and his team and sign him up for those, at least those first two years at 24, $25 million and then, renegotiate from there all right with that said let's talk about the team as a whole they are 35 and 37 we have still failed to get to 500 when we could have done it against the houston rockets and the um, dallas mavericks anyways what are your thoughts on the macro of how the team has looked recently tommy on one end if you just stop everything if you stop tracking this team since last tuesday when the new orleans pelicans game ended Man, we were on such a high, immaculate vibes, as D'Angelo Russell said. We all saw that picture <laughs> on the bench with LeBron James and everybody going crazy. And we were like, "We were like to the moon we go. And then reality set in with the Houston Rockets loss and mismanagement. The Dallas Mavericks, Maxi Kleber debacle. Almost giving the game away against the Orlando Magic. And now we're kind of left in a place where I feel like we're trying to pick up the pieces again, sort of. For me, it feels like the honeymoon phase is over. And... I think what this team is going through right now is a bit of a lull that most teams experience during the second quarter of their season. Except, Tommy, we're in the fourth quarter of this season. And we can't afford to have any lulls. But unfortunately, this is what happens when you totally reshape your basketball team with two to three months left in the season. You're just naturally going to get this group kind of acting in their mind like, oh, yeah, you know, because we just got put together. This is sort of like... November, you know, and this is the typical lulls that any team would have. Unfortunately, we can't afford to have any of that. And so, obviously, the last week, for me, I feel like we're teetering on the edge here and hanging by a thread. I know the analytics say we're still, like, one of the best, if not the best, defensive-rated team since the All-Star break, but on a game-to-game basis and with Anthony Davis, like, floating in and out of dominance and kind of... Lollygaggingness. It's and then also the shooting just being super volatile. From game to game, you're not really sure what you can count on anymore. Obviously, and I think a lot of this really just can be attributed to, in my opinion, to the Rockets' mismanagement and the Dallas Mavericks game because I feel like we just lost a lot of momentum, and from there, you know, doubt starts to seep in, et cetera, et cetera, and. Last week, we just shot ourselves in the foot, and we nixed that momentum ourselves um, by not preparing adequately for the Rockets game and either signing a legit 7-footer who's 260 pounds in advance or by just playing AD at least 28 minutes in the Rockets game. You don't not do both, Tommy. You either have a 7-footer ready or you play AD, and the the Lakers didn't have either. And as we've been saying this entire season— If you don't do right by process, the basketball gods will bite you. And they did with the Maxi Kleber buzzer beater. And in my opinion, I feel like now we're sort of scrambling and trying to kind of research and find our identity and what made us so lit and immaculate the games prior. But even the games prior, you know, we lost to the Knicks. We lost that game to the Minnesota Timberwolves. I feel like we're a good team in there, but there's a lot of different factors working against us, including time is running out and just the pressure is on. And it's just, for me, it's hard to put that on a newly constructed team with new guys who haven't been there the entire season, you know, but what have your thoughts been um, in general about this team?
1: I'm still pretty high on the team, to be honest. Um, Look, since the trade deadline, you know, there's, there's only so much, you can expect this team to do, I think. And maybe it's like, as fans, we got a little bit too high on, on what this team could do, particularly in the front office. Well, maybe. Right. But like, let's just like put it like this. Okay. In the last, since the trade deadline, the Lakers are still 10 and six, including those two horrific losses back to back to Houston and Dallas. Right. It was our first two game losing or first two consecutive losses since the trade deadline. 10 and 6 would give us, you know, a 62, 63% winning percentage, which is pace for second place in the West right now. So, you know, we've seen the stats like since the trade deadline, I think we're, we still have the fifth best record. I, I, I understand that like, you know, it was two rough games when you're really fighting for every advantage you can get and for every like, not just, not just like literal direct day-to-day seating advantage you can get, but like advantage in the sense of you're going into potentially a postseason with historically battered stars. So like try to pick up some wins now so that, you know, those, that Phoenix game, that Utah game at the end of the season, maybe you don't have to play those guys. Right. Um, But unfortunately it doesn't seem like it's going to work out that way. But I, I mean, look, I'm still high on this team. I was talking to you about this actually after the Orlando game it's gonna go overlooked, but Orlando coming off that Dallas loss was actually not that easy of a matchup. Those guys were coming off a high; no. they just beat they beat the Clippers. You know, I know they're a lotto team, but I think Billy Max said this during the the telecast: like they were twenty four and twenty two in their previous forty six. So for more than half the season, they've been playing plus five hundred ball, like two games over five hundred ball, which is. Puts them with just, you know, just as good as anyone else in the NBA. We saw they have Paolo, they have very versatile bigs, their guards hound you. They're a good team, and we won that game. And I don't think we even, like, we shot well, but, like, overall, like, 80 didn't have a great game. And it kind of took Austin and, um, you know, some of our perimeter shooting to sort of save us in that game. But, you know, it's, these are not, like, we're 10-6 and during like the kind of tougher stretch. Um, I know we were going to talk about like the next 10 or like the final Mm -hmm. 10, right? It does ease up a little bit in my opinion. I think like, you know, if the goal was always 500 by the end of the season, now we know where there's 10 games left, we have to go six and four. So looking at these 10 games, I guess like I'll pose the question to you first. Like, do you see six games that are winnable here?
2: Yeah, I guess we can get to that now then. Um, I do see six wins. I feel like the Lakers need to go seven and three um, in the last 10 if they want to get to seven or eight at this point. I'm not sure about six, although obviously things change game by game with these teams and the Lakers may just fail upwards. But I think they need to go seven and three to get to 42 and 40. Can they get to six and four? Yes. So my five locks would be so here are the last 10. You got Phoenix, Oklahoma City, Chicago at home. Then you got Chicago, Minnesota on the road. Chicago, Minnesota, Houston, Utah on the road. That's four straight. And then you have Clippers on a back-to-back. I guess that's five straight, but we're still going to be in L.A. And then we close the season with Phoenix and Utah at home. So for me, the five games that I see that are quote-unquote locks would be, man, Oklahoma City on Friday. They have to win that game regardless of whether or not Shea wins or regardless of whether or not Shea plays. Chicago at home, and I know Chicago is running hot right now, which kinda scares me, but they gotta win that game. Houston, revenge game at Houston. Utah at Utah, and you hope they rest Larry Markinen like they did the other night, but then there's no guarantees with that either, <laughs> with the Utah Jazz. Yeah. Um and then the last Utah game at home. So those are the five. So if we wanna get to six, For me, we got to find a way to get one or two wins between the two Phoenix games at home, and maybe that happens that second-to-last game against Phoenix when maybe they're resting guys, but maybe Kevin Durant's going to play because he needs to get back in game shape, you know? So maybe not. So we need one or two additional wins between the two Phoenix games at home, Chicago on the road, Minnesota on the road, who presumably might have Carl Towns back and Anthony Edwards as soon as Wednesday this week and then the Clippers game. So can we get one or two wins between two between Phoenix, Chicago, Minnesota, and the
1: Clippers? Where do you stand? I think we can go six and four. The seven and three, I think, is going to be tough. But I mean, a lot of this is like sort of predicated on whether LeBron is going to play um, and when he's going to play, right? So it's like, we know we have 10 games back. Are we getting him back for five of those? Are we getting him back for four of those? Like, I think that starts to make actually a pretty big difference at this point because in the last 11 without LeBron we're six and five so and we've had the benefit of some home stretches now we have a few more games on the at home here right so it's like Phoenix obviously LeBron's not going to be back but and maybe you count that as like a scheduled loss because Phoenix has been playing pretty well even without KD um, and they're still playing preceding too by the way because the Clippers have been playing pretty well as well so you're, LeBron's not playing that game. Maybe Oklahoma City and Chicago. You think like two home games we can get by without him. Does he come back with seven games left? Because then that makes a big difference, right? If he comes back with six, seven games left, and we get some momentum with him. I mean, we we've gone t- we've gone six and five in these last eleven without him. We would have got eight, eight and three at least, right, with him. So it's it it's going to kind of really impact how i view this but in terms of lock wins if you want to call them that right (laughs) accepting that not nothing is a lock i think okc home against chicago at houston and then i think the both of the utah games i would count those as like kind of locks only in the sense Mm -hmm. that um i think especially by april 9th and probably even by april 4th Utah is going to be tanking. I mean, they've already started to like try to stealth tank. It doesn't work against like some teams, but I think we'll be so desperate that it should be fine. Um, You know, so I I'll take those five wins. And then, so that means between like LA at, excuse me, at the Clippers, two games against Phoenix, you know, at Chicago, at Minnesota um, from those five games, we just have to win, like, one or two, (laughs) you know what I mean, so it's, like, and can we do it, I don't know, I think the Clippers is, like, we never beat the Clippers, two games against Phoenix, they're both at home, but, like, Phoenix is playing for seeding, I mean, if we win tomorrow, that changes the scope a little bit, because then we're ahead of the game, but, so you know, it's interesting, though, it's, like, you know, it's, we do, we we overanalyze, maybe, on, like, a micro game-to-game level but as we've seen even in the last like 16 games like we're gonna win some we shouldn't have won probably or we wouldn't have guessed and then we're gonna probably lose some that we would have been like that's a lot like houston i think all of us would have looked at the calendar and been like that's a lock win you know like especially given the circumstances of the season and and it wasn't but then on the other hand we beat like Memphis at home and Golden State at home and Steph's in Steph's first game back and you know a tough win at OKC and a tough win at Dallas like we had these wins that maybe you wouldn't have expected but but then we lose to Houston then.
2: <laughs> but see with this late being this late in the game this is why and with your margin for error so small as it has been all year that's why if you have some momentum going for you Tommy you don't screw things up with what the Lakers did. Against Houston, that second night of a back to back by not preparing you know because I feel like if we had won that game, we would have been much you know i I really believe in this momentum thing like if we had won yeah, that no, game I, and I, gone into Dallas at home with a five hundred record, I feel like we would have handily won that game instead of losing to Maxi Kleber, you know, and then from there all of a sudden you're just rolling, but Because we did what we did and shot ourselves in the foot, we're kind of trying to, you know, do this like win two games here and then schedule loss here and then maybe win two again and then schedule loss here versus just having this continuity of positive momentum going forward, right? Um, Anyways, yeah, 6-4 and is the baseline of what we need to hope for to close this episode. Have there been any, like, good standouts to you? I'll give my one big standout. Shout out to Wenyan Gabriel and Troy Brown. Honestly, the last two games, I feel like Wenyan Gabriel has picked up the slack with regards to Vanderbilt's burning out, dude. And it's not his fault. I feel like we've run him into the ground, especially not having this extra big. We've heard that maybe we'll get Tony Bradley or Tristan Thompson in. Please, give me Tony Bradley. (laughs) But... As a result of having to, you know, be the one hustle guy at six eight, I feel like we're starting to see the regression in Vanderbilt. He's still really good. He still had like double digit rebounds like a couple games ago, but it's clear that he's just not operating the way he did during that game versus Dallas, although I You probably can't expect anyone to operate um, consistently the way that Vando did against Dallas in that 27-point comeback. But huge shout-out to Wenyon Gabriel because he has brought that energy and burst and offensive rebounding and defense that we've needed. Um, Troy Brown is still continuing to shoot pretty well. It's starting to be like one game he sucks, the next game he's hitting three to four threes, which is great. But overall... Um, really solid on Troy Brown's end. But then the one guy I want to highlight is Rui Hachimura because I feel like he's getting underlooked because he's only playing like 18 to 20 minutes a game. But in those 18 to 20 minutes, Tommy, like he is so efficient and effective. Yeah. And he serves as a very important safety valve for this team. In fact, since February 11th, Rui Hachimura is 19 of 19 from the free throw line. Considering the way he started with this team where he was always missing one of two at the line, like, that is a huge improvement. Now, the next step is getting to the line more often, right, to take advantage of that. Um, But with regards to his three-point shooting, he's 9 of 17 in his last seven games, and that has been huge. So, in March, in just 21 minutes, Rui Hachimura is averaging 9.7 points, hitting 51% from the field, 43% from three, 100% from the free throw line. I mean, that'll get it done. And Tommy, that is the modern NBA version of Montrez Harrell coming off the bench. You know, that's the bench big we were hoping for when we signed Montrez Harrell, except Rui Hachimura is giving you that additional spacing. So anyone else you want to touch upon or if you want to touch upon Rui as well?
1: Yeah, Rui has been a great in my opinion, and, and I think he's sort of caused a lot of fans probably at this point to like reassess their initial impressions mm-hmm. of him. Um... This is sort of what we expected. If anything, I will say, I'm actually most impressed by what he's done defensively. Um, mm-hmm. He does not look lost. I mean, he came in as not like a I mean, he I don't think he came in as like, oh, this guy's the worst defender in the NBA. But he didn't come in as like a plus defender reputation wise, despite his like body. Right. Um I don't know what it is if it's, but it does feel like something is sort of shifted in him. And I wonder if it's like the consistent work he's getting with Phil Handy. Um, Hmm. Because it does seem like he is now able to, you know, get to his spots on offense, get the shots that he wants very decisively and defensively. He's competing against smalls on the perimeter. He's competing against bigs on the interior. Like he's doing everything we've asked him to do. And and to your Vanderbilt point, I think like, the Vanderbilt lineups are such a plus um, because of the sort of energy impact he had in that first like burst for like the first week or two that he joined the team um, and probably enhanced by playing with both LeBron and AD, right? But I think the thing with Vanderbilt is like you said, it's like he's burning out or maybe, maybe to put it better, like our effectiveness, the way we're using him is sort of wearing out, you know, like teams are, getting used to leaving him alone and and the spacing is starting to hurt us. And, you know, we're playing elite defense. We're still, I think, number one defensive rating since the, since the trade deadline, but it is hurting our offense so much. And without LeBron, like we have to be able to like score some points to stay competitive. And I just think there's a better balance that could be had between like You know, playing Rui, you know, even at the three, sometimes if you want to keep playing uh, Vanderbilt with AD, um, but getting him on the floor, because not only has he proven he can hit from the free throw line consistently now, which is great because our guys have been drawing fouls very well, but he's, you know, he's hitting the mid range consistently and he's hitting the three pointer consistently and he's playing some defense. So like, you can't really ask for too much more. Um, Too much more than that, and and I feel like we have to kind of find minutes for him at this point, because we need more scoring.
2: I agree, and I think with Vando, you're starting to see the problems with, offensively, with him mucking up the spacing with Anthony Davis, you know, Um, where Anthony Davis can't be more of, can't be the center of the floor as much with Vando there, like, clogging the lane. And so you see Anthony Davis operating in high pick and roll, which actually he should be operating more in high pick and roll, but he's more relegated to the, the mid-post or mid-range elbow jumper spot. Um, but anyways, Anthony Davis is a larger discussion for another time. We just hope that we get the beast version of Anthony Davis versus Phoenix because we will definitely need that version to have a chance with DeAndre Ayton probably back. But yeah, this is where we stand and we hope we can get gather and garner a little bit of momentum heading into our pretty long road trip, you know, coming up. And if I had to make a prediction, I'd probably say if we're looking at the early spectrum of things, maybe LeBron is back by the maybe by the Houston away game cuz that's a good sort of way to re-enter the group against quote-unquote a lesser opponent in Houston and then on the probably later end of the spectrum I feel like that Clippers game is probably ripe for a kingly return if you know what I'm saying so that would be pretty that would be pretty Hollywood if LeBron James came back for that third to last game of the season and then we went out from there but we shall see with that said that will do it for our episode thank God for Austin Reeves and please Lakers just Beat the, Phoenix Suns, beat the Phoenix Suns somehow, and then we need to beat Shea Gilgis and the Oklahoma City Thunder because they have done nasty things to us on our own home court, and it's time to get revenge. Um, but yeah, with that said, thank you guys for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Legacy Pod, and please rate and review us five stars on the Apple Podcast app and hit that five-star button on our Spotify page as well. With that said, Tommy, I will catch you later. Peace. See ya. <laughs>